Previously on the Tony Kornheiser Show. No, I think it's hardening people's positions. Yeah. Yeah. Right. yeah. So I was playing golf the other day. I'm playing sure. golf with a doctor. A guy probably in his 50s. We'd say a fellow doctor, a fe- a right? Fellow, a fellow doctor. Well, he's a medical doctor. Doc- doctor like yourself. Yeah, no, he's an actual <laughs> medical doctor. The Tony Kornheiser Show is on now. All righty. Let me open with a few small things. Rob Gronkowski is retiring again. Raise your hand if you believe he will never play again with Tom Brady this year. Nobody raises their hands. Right. Because he probably will play again this year with Tom Brady because what else is he going to do? He likes Tom Brady. He's, they're both going to the Hall of Fame. Yeah. On the same day. Yep. You know. He's going to play. Get the call in November. Hey, you want to just do the last couple of months? Sure. So I don't want to do much with that. 20 of the 24 lawsuits against Deshaun Watson have been settled. That leaves four lawsuits. You have to wonder if all four won't be settled as well. These are civil lawsuits. These are not criminal lawsuits. Grand juries have declined to prosecute Deshaun Watson criminally. So when you have a civil lawsuit... You say, I am suing for X. There is a goal in mind. And if you get X, you drop the lawsuit. Now, you may not because you may want... See, the, the problem with settling a lawsuit and settling it with a non-disclosure agreement, which is how these things are typically settled, the problem for the women involved is they don't get an apology. Mm-hmm. Deshaun Watson, under those terms, would never have to say, I did this and I'm sorry. He could not ever admit, um, and he could pay out, and the lawsuits could all be settled. It's, it's what do the plaintiffs want? What do they want? The four lawsuits that have not yet been settled seems to me they want something more mm-hmm. than just a settlement with money. But I don't know. I don't know the people involved. I would think that most people would look at Deshaun Watson settling these lawsuits and say, for their purposes. This is an admission of guilt. I believe that. I believe that Deshaun Watson and Rusty Harden said, well, how do we get out of this now? What do we do? And we offer money. That's how it works. Deshaun Watson has a $230 million guaranteed contract. He can pay each of these 24 plaintiffs three to $5 million. It's not going to hurt him that much. Yeah. And, and I think the effect of that is that I understand that the NFL is not bound by anything that happens in the courts when they discipline someone. But there's a big difference between 24 lawsuits and four outstanding lawsuits. And it seems to me possible, possible, that Deshaun Watson will not miss more than this year and may not even miss all of this year if all of them are settled. This is my belief. I don't know how it'll work out. Brooks Kepka has apparently joined the Saudi tour. This should come as no shock to anyone. Brooks Kepka's brother is on the Saudi tour. And Brooks Kepka last Monday in his press conference before the U.S. Open started whining about how reporters were asking him questions about the Saudi tour. This is a legitimate news story. The entire golf world is fractured. And this guy... <laughs> You know, decides, I don't have to take these questions. I don't have to listen to this. That's your first indication. It's everybody's first indication. He's going to jump. So he jumped. Does it hurt the PGA Tour? Yes. Yes, it hurts the PGA Tour. Is he a particularly popular player? No, he's not. He's a frosty, sort of egomaniacal player who is disdainful of golf and often says, I don't care about golf other than the majors. He's a major winner four times. Yeah. There's nobody out there now other than Phil Mickelson, who's 52 years old, who has more majors than Brooks Kepka. There's nobody. So you have Kepka and DeChambeau and Dustin Johnson and Patrick Reed. Are they popular? DeChambeau might be sort of popular, but not really. You know, but they all are major winners and they're all Americans and they all jumped. And at some point, the PGA Tour is going to have to make an accommodation, probably with the Saudi Tour. If the majors allow everybody to play, why wouldn't you play and take the money? Well, why wouldn't you? Because you thought, I don't really want to help the country of Saudi Arabia sports wash themselves and sort of be immune to 
accusations of who they murdered. That would be a global view. That would be a global view for some. Apparently not for these and not for Phil Mickelson, who's more popular than all these people put together, but is also 52 years old. So, you know, we wait, we wait. The analogy is there's, there's two big baskets of fruit. And at the moment, one of the baskets of fruit has much more fruit than the other basket. But each day, some of the fruit is being transferred from the big basket to the small basket. Yeah. And there is a tipping point where, you know, you have to try and have a merger. You know, and it tips on two things, majors and world ranking points. If the Saudi tour is able to successfully negotiate a way to get their tournaments to count for world ranking points, that's the end of the game, kids. That's the end of the game. The PGA Tour is going to have to do something. And they're already starting by having no-cut tournaments and more money, which is what they should have been doing for a while now. But they had to wait to see if the Saudi Tour got off the ground. And all of that is nice to talk about. And I can talk about the Nats getting pretty good pitching last night. And winning yeah, Fetty, right? Sadly, be in front of no crowd at all at Camden Yards because two last-place teams, nobody yeah. cares. And I would talk about that at length, except that I got something from Easy Pass yesterday. You know, I know that a lot of you think, oh, Tony Kornheiser's famous. And he can get tables at restaurants and he can get people to do things for him. That's all that's true. All that's true. Things, good things accrue around fame. Not all good things, but some good things accrue, accrue around fame. You can get a good table at a restaurant. You can help your friends. You can hurt your enemies. But you can't beat the easy pass system. <laughs> I get this yesterday. What happened? It's my latest transaction in my running balance. And there are six transactions on April 1st, on March 7th, on April 7th, on November 13th, on April 28th, and on May 19th. Six transactions with the transponder that I apparently use on EasyPass. We all love EasyPass. Yes. Six of them. One of them, two of them are my cars. Four of them is something else. Four of them, because it says transaction type, and then it gives my two license plates, and then this, 03140. I don't know what that is. Yeah, what does that mean? Four different transactions for that. I have to call Easy Pass and say the following sentence. Now, you can't even get a real person. Yeah, it's always You a can't get a person. <laughs> you know, so you can't say, let me plead my case. My case is pretty simple. Someone or something is pirating my Easy Pass because that's not my car. And Carol said yesterday, well, you hold the Easy Pass up when you go through the gate. And maybe it, it lets the next car go through on your easy pass. And I say, sure, but these are different dates. Yeah. These are different dates. So I want to know who is pirating my car? Who is, use, who is taking a free ride on my car? Now, because yep. that's not me. You haven't loaned it out to anyone, have you? No. That makes zero sense then. That it doesn't. And, and you don't recognize those dates as maybe they just sort of mislabeled it? Like, were you driving to Rehoboth on any of those dates? If they are capable of getting my license plates, they're capable of getting my license plates all the time. One would think, yes. Well, who is this person or these persons? Don't know. How are they allowed? And now I have to replenish my account for 25 bucks. That's the normal replenishing fee. Right. And I've used $6.50. And Billy Bob has used the rest. <laughs> Who is Billy Bob? <laughs> Who is this? Mr. Thornton. How yes. does this work? <laughs> um, I can't be the only one this happens to. I, I just can't be. I've right? Sean, can't be the only one. Uh, no, my, my dad actually, uh, he lived in Kentucky, but he would come visit me in New York enough that he ordered an easy pass and apparently they didn't put it in the pouch when it got shipped out. So when it arrived, he already had a bill for its travel to to Kentucky from New York in the UPS truck. And the fight was insane to get the money back. I, I Yeah, because I it, can't get a person. Whatever whatever numbers they give you, you end up in an automated something or other. Yeah. And then they, they you can't get somebody like if somebody works for Easy Pass, would you take my call today? 
Would you do that? Because this is, you have to tell me who are these people or this person who is getting a free ride off of me? Tell me who it is and cancel it. Send me a different easy pass. They should have. Uh, they, they have records. They know how to do it. Yeah. I would. Uh, do they take photographs like when you pass through that so they can match the license plate yes. with that? So yes. one would think that they would have I hold access. mine up. Yeah. You, you, you're handheld. I'm guy. an idiot. <laughs> that's just but, how you, that's how you I get don't, through it. I'm, you know, well, the, problem, I don't, the, the state of Maryland shouldn't be able to make money off me. Yeah. By, unless it's me. I got no problem if I go through. Well, Who are these people? This is why, and I, I need to emulate your behavior. You go through every bill, and this is an easy one because there's do. only a few charges on it, but you're always afraid that somebody's just throwing some extra charges in there, hoping that you won't notice, because most people don't go through stuff. They're just like, oh, what's the bill? I'll pay that. you know. And you just hope that, because then if they get caught, they're like, oh, that's an error on our part. Don't worry. This isn't we'll- even a phone number because it's eight numbers. Yeah. Phone number is seven numbers. This is eight numbers. It's not a license plate. I don't know who it is. I don't know what's going on. And I could solve it in 20 seconds if I got a live body. Yeah. But nobody wants to have live bodies because they don't want to pay employees. And that's why everything is done transactionally off computers. But that doesn't do me any good. No. Your know, computer can't talk to me. It's a war of attrition. They just they expect you to be worn down by it. Not f- going to be. I'm, not, <laughs> I'm old. I got nothing else but anger. That's all I got. No. So I, I, somebody, if somebody hears this, just tell me, send me an email. How do I get a live body right. to just explain to me how is this happening? And that's it's all, not me. Yeah. That's all you want. You just want to have a conversation with somebody because when you present the facts, you'll be like, look, this doesn't make any sense. Please make this right. It's not my yeah, You people know, you people, <laughs> you people know what, what, who this belongs to. You know. They should you have know the- what belongs to me, and if you know what belongs to me, you know what belongs to somebody else. Yeah. That's my story, and I'm sticking to it. Just wanted to say that. Get off the air now. My, my violent anger. <laughs> Brian Windhorst, when we return, I'm Tony Kornheiser. Check out our new NBA show, Beyond the Arc, part of the CBS Sports Podcast Network, where you can find me, John Gonzalez, NBA insider Bill Ryder, and Ashley Nicole Moss, five days a week talking all things NBA. Whether you're looking for insightful discussions, upbeat commentary, breaking news, interviews, or coverage of all the biggest stories in the NBA, our new show is the place to be five days a week. Download and follow Beyond the Arc on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. You're listening to The Tony Kornheiser Show. Music today is from Jay Johnson, our friend who writes, hope your summer's off to a great start. Life's been super busy in this newest of new normals. It's been great to be playing a lot of shows again, but I'm only finally releasing my debut solo album, Four Quartets, sharing a couple of songs off it. This is Star Child, Love You So. It's the last single off the album. And Jay writes, I sang and played guitar, bass, bells, and chimes on this, and my friend Matty Klauser played drums and engineered. We've also started playing together in a new country-western-themed rock band called Mandy Valentine. That's been getting a lot of love around Philadelphia. That's nice. We've recorded some really cool new material for that project that will be out soon. Star Child Love You So releases Friday, June 24th, which is in two days on Spotify, Bandcamp, and all streaming services. And we'll do a second song later. This song plays in Brian Windhorst, who is always, every time we call him, getting a haircut. (laughs) And always has to go early so that he can get a haircut. I don't get haircuts because I don't have any hair anymore. But your hair must grow. Either we, we're timing out maybe every month, or I don't know how fast does your hair grow. I was just trying to, you know, it sounds like a ridiculous excuse for why we have to go early, but it's happened twice in a row. Yeah, I just didn't want Nigel to think yeah. that I was like coming up with an excuse of why we had to alter the time and say, "Oh, I, I got to get a haircut." But my perfectly my right. haircut specialist. Cuts my hair at 7 a.m. Right. And, That's um, central. It's a, You're in central yeah, time. Yeah. It, it's, they, she squeezes me in because I don't plan. I'm getting special treatment, Tony, which I know that Good. you are. I approve. You are. <laughs> yeah. I love it. I love special treatment. It's good for you. Does she come to your house to do this or do you have no. to go to her? Oh, well, no, she, I go to her and Danny comes here. There, and yeah, I, Danny, I, Danny I drives here. She comes here, you know. 
you get cut, dyed, beautified every five or six weeks, and then you look like an ogre anyway. It doesn't really matter, but you look good. Let's start with this. The draft is tonight. The only person in America excited is Michael Wilbon. He's the only person. I looked through a mock draft. After the first three names, I didn't know anybody. You know, and Wilbon said, what about this guy? You know this guy. And I don't really know this guy. I know a couple of names were vaguely familiar um, when did the, I guess this has been a while because of one and dones and stuff like that. And now the G league, but what do you, what do you think of the draft? To me, it's now the NFL draft without quarterbacks. You know what I mean? If, if, if I don't know any of the linemen in the NFL draft, I don't know any of the players other than quarterbacks, other than the top three guys. I don't know any of these people. What do you think of the draft? Well, I'm first off, I'm sorry to tell you that the draft is tomorrow. Oh, I know you okay. were looking forward to getting rid of this off your plate. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. No, this is a result of the new normal, which is that so many of the players, top players, don't play in, in college basketball. So not only do you have, uh, you know, of the, of the lottery picks, you know, the, the top uh, uh, 14 picks, which is what people mostly care about, um, you're going to have players, yes, from major schools, Duke, Iowa, Wisconsin will be represented in there. Um, but you also have guys who played in Australia. Uh, there's, a, there's, a, there's a young French, Frenchman who played in Australia um, who's only 19. Uh, and you have guys who played in the G League, which is a successful program that people really like um, that is already having success, but nobody gets to see them play. So right. they get like a hundred thousand, two hundred thousand dollars, but you don't know who they are, and so in and now there's a third sort of option in a in an operation in Atlanta for high school kids to skip college, and that they were not going to have any first round picks this year, but they might next year, and so this is the new normal. Um, and until colleges really start paying everybody, uh, you know, of going rate, which is I guess starting, I think this is still going to happen. The thing that you need to know about this draft, Tony, is that there's there's a couple of guys at the top that you will know, like Chet Holmgren, uh, Jabari Smith. Um, but the most exciting thing in the draft is likely going to happen when the Sacramento Kings get on the <clears throat> get on the clock at the fourth pick. Um, nobody knows what's going to happen there. The expectation is that this young man out of Purdue, Jaden Ivey, is going to be on the on the uh, board at four and the Kings do not need a point guard. And not only that, this young man has no interest in playing in Sacramento. He has not talked to them. He has not uh, gone to see them. He's barely acknowledged their existence in an effort to try to not get picked by them. So unless there's a surprise in the top three and somebody picks him, uh, Ivy is going to be there at four. Unless, uh, and so then things are going to get very interesting. Uh, the, he, has made it very clear he does not want to get drafted by the Sacramento Kings, didn't talk to him in the pre-draft process, wouldn't go out to Sacramento or let them see him work out. And the Kings have kind of made it clear they may be willing to trade it. So this is something that used to happen in the 90s, before this modern era of uh, where everything was uh, done sort of in advance. They're going to, I think, take this kid, uh, Ivy, Jaden Ivy, and they're going to raffle him off, maybe while they're on the clock. Okay. Um, and um, the reason this has gotten a lot of attention is because and he himself, in an interview this week, said, yeah, uh, I think the Knicks are trying to trade for me. And we were all like, oh, really? <laughs> um, thank you for telling us that. And so the Knicks are making offers. Uh, the Pacers, we believe, are making offers and maybe some other teams uh, interested in him. So certainly the top three picks are where the action is going to be uh, and where, where a lot of the star power is. But in actually watching the draft, if you turn it on for the fourth pick, that's what you're going to want to be there for. I think I might take a G League kid. I mean, if I needed help right now, I think I might take a kid who played in the pros if he was good. The only thing I'd worry about is a sort of AAU mentality of the G League, which is I don't care if we win or lose. I'm just out here for me. Yeah, so one of the there's a young man in this draft um, uh, who has become very very interested for some teams. I mentioned earlier the, the, the French, uh, the French kid. His name's yeah. Osman Osman Jang. He's in Australia. And yeah, he, he he played in Australia. And the reason Australia is interesting is because even in the G League, they're not playing against you know all the you know men. And the, the Australian league is a league full of men. Yeah, and we saw Lamelo Ball go down there, and you know he played a few 
dozen games, and he, he looked just okay. His stats weren't great. The scouts were very excited, but his stats weren't great. Then he came to the NBA, and he was ready to play because what he had actually gone through in Australia was more closer to the NBA experience than in college or he would have maybe gotten in the G League. And so the Australian option has been very interesting. And so, yes, Tony, I think you're right. I think there's an advantage to playing in a pro league as opposed to, even though I think that college is obviously a terrific development system, but when you play in a pro league against men, the uh, the preparation that you get tends to be a little bit more yeah. valuable. Yeah. And I think that that's, has shown out over the last few years. Two words, boys and girls. Luka Doncic went over at 15 or 16, came into the NBA and, and could play right, right away. He's like 21 or 22 years old. He's going to be the MVP at, at some point. Four years ago or three years ago, whenever DeAndre Ayton was on the board, I remember Bill is telling us he's Will Chamberlain. He's not Will Chamberlain, is he? He's really not. He's really Did he not. really say that? Yes. I, 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 Reminds that's, me that's of Will Chamberlain. Bar. Yeah, that's what we thought. Will Bott and I said, Will Chamberlain. And now, now well, Phoenix Tony, doesn't want him. I, yeah. I'm going to tell you about this. If you haven't heard about him, you're going to. There's a, there's a kid in France named Victor Wembayama. Victor Wembayama is not in this draft, but people are already thinking about him. He'll be in the draft next year. He's playing in Europe now. He is seven foot two, and he is as exciting of a prospect as we've seen in a decade. Okay, and maybe even more exciting than Doncic, although probably won't be as accomplished as Doncic. So, when you talk to your friends about the NBA draft, you can impress them by talking about Victor Wembayama. I just wrote it down, Wembayamba. I'm 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 yeah. good on that. You know, I'm I'm good on that. Uh, by the way. What a shocker that John Wall exercised the $47 million option to not play for another year. He has no career. What, what, what is – I can't stand John Wall because I watched him for years just run ahead of everybody else and not really understand how to be a team leader on any level and care only about getting a sneaker deal. But he's now – he will have made like $89 million in two years to not play. What are they doing at Houston? What is is this kid ever going to get back in the league? This is like the guys that live golf. They're like, wait a minute, I can get a whole bunch of money and barely play. Sounds good to me. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. I don't think. I mean, basically, Houston has said we're not gonna we're not gonna let you go play elsewhere unless you take a whole bunch less money. This happened with Blake Griffin uh, when he was in Detroit a few years ago. He had two years and like. 40 or 50 million dollars left on his contract and he said listen i don't want to be here anymore and they go good we don't want to play you anymore but for you to actually get out you're going to have to do something for us we're not just going to keep sending you checks for two years to go play somewhere else and so blake took a 10 million dollar uh hit he took 10 million dollars less than he was owed he basically bought his way out and he went and played for brooklyn the last two years and lost five or six million dollars in the process he basically paid that right. was the premium it was worth it so basically that's what houston has said houston has said to john wall we will buy you out but you gotta you gotta give us a bunch of money back so that it, we're not just gonna send you checks to go beat us when you're playing for the lakers and to this point john wall has not been willing to do that or at least what is being offered by the rockets is not palatable to john wall now the indications are tony that that is about to end okay. at some point here they are going to come to terms on an agreement, whatever it is. But when he had $90 million left, he wasn't interested in giving up $10, 15000000 million when he was only going to get a few million. So, you know, part of it you could argue is good business, even though it does have the appearance of ridiculousness. Uh, is, there, is there a story with the Kenny Atkinson thing that we don't know yet? Are we going to know it in six months or eight months or a year? Do, is, you know, the fact that he, he actually took the job in Charlotte and then turned around and said, eh, I'm going to go back and be an assistant at the Warriors. Is there a story there? Not that I know of. Doesn't mean there's something I don't know about. Right. I just think what it is is, you know, the, the Hornets do not have a, what you would call a first-class operation. Um, and you, he was going from maybe the epitome of a first-class operation in the NBA and the Warriors um, and over there. And I think once he got in the job and realized how it was going to operate, he wasn't crazy about it. Now, most people would take that, you know, you know, if you're an assistant coach, at there's only Kentucky, 30 jobs. There's only right. 30. Right. Like I'll say this about like my alma mater, Kent state. Uh, it's not, it's, it's not the, the most resource rich 
college basketball environment in the world. So if you're an assistant coach at Kentucky and you come to Kent State to be the head coach, it's going to be a little different. Um, but in that case, you know you're playing in a different conference. You know, the Hornets are playing in the same world as the Warriors. Right. It was surprising. but it, it, Billy Donovan did this, if you remember, way back when he left Florida, had the press conference, took the job, and then said, yeah, I don't want to do that. But that was a college pro situation. Right. This, is, this, right. is, this is unusual. And really, it's a reflection on, on the Hornets. So, um, you know, the, the last coach who was in there, James Borrego, he did a pretty good job. It yes. wasn't a super successful time, but he did a pretty good job, and he got fired anyway. And I think one of the things is like, well, wait a minute. I, I'm not – I think Kenny got in there and said, I can do a pretty good job here and maybe we can squeak into eighth place, and maybe I'll get fired anyway. Um, so it's not the greatest look, but somebody else will be very happy to take that job, and they have LaMelo Ball, and they have a couple of good young players. They might actually be decent in the next few years. I don't want to hold you up if you have to go. If you can do one more question, it's the sure, $64,000 question, which used to be a meaningful sum of money. <laughs> Kyrie Irving, why would anybody take him? And I know you like him. I know that. Why would anyone tell? How can you trust him? I wouldn't say I like him, and I definitely don't trust him. Um, he is, I have sort of looked at it, and I've, I've termed him a 40 percenter. And um, 40 percent of the time, he's brilliant. But the other 60% of the time, he's either injured, not playing for reasons that he decides, or not good. And there's no 100%er. Um, you know, even LeBron doesn't, never in his prime played 100% great all the time, but he's a 40%er. And so what he wants right now is to be paid a complete premium to be a 40%er. And the Nets can see the lay of the land, they realize that there's not a bunch of teams out there you know, beating down the door to try to get Kyrie Irving. And not only that, there's not even a lot of salary cap space. It's not like there's six teams out there with $50 million in space trying to figure out who they're going to pay. It's actually a relatively tight year for cap space. And so they're just playing a leverage game. Like, look, Kyrie, we'll have you back, but we're not going to give you a $200 million contract. We're not going to guarantee you five years. We just can't do it. And Kyrie is like, what do you mean you're not going to do that? Okay, well, if you're not going to do that, I'm going to go look elsewhere. I don't think he's got great options out there. Um, I think his best option or his best leverage is that Kevin Durant would be very upset if the Nets lost Kyrie Irving for nothing because this is a guy who's about to turn 34 years old. He wants to compete for championships. And if Kyrie Irving and his 40% walk out the door, 40% is better than 0%. And so – what I think is going to end up happening is that there's going to be some, you know, a lot of clattering around Kyrie, but they're going to, and he's going to end up being a net on some sort of broker deal. That's a short deal that is either just a year or two or um, is uh, something that protects the nets in case he decides to not prioritize them anymore. And look, to be honest with you, Tony, He's got a player option for next year, and if he picks that up at $36 million, I'm yeah. not sure the Nets aren't just going to say, okay, we'll see you in training camp for that one-year contract. And if Kyrie really, really wants to call their bluff and really, really wants to put the chips on the table, he'll opt out of that contract and say, okay, I'm a free agent now, but he's not guaranteed anything for next year. And if he does that by next Wednesday, then we'll really have a battle. Until he does that, I think this is kind of all posturing. He'll take a day more for a birthday party. He doesn't. He That's just, correct. You know, it's what a, That's not even an what, exaggeration. You can't, by can't the way, have him. You can't it have him. A game. It was like numerous games. Yeah, it, it, he's the worst teammate. You know, I say this all the time play tennis, play golf. Just don't be on a team. All right, thanks, Brian. Enjoy your haircut. Talk Take to you care, soon. Bye bye. Love Brian Windhorst. Love he's, him. He's great. Love him. We'll take a break. Ian Tornaday will join us when we return. Talk about this Elvis movie. It's, I've been sold a bill of goods, I think, on an Elvis movie. I'm Tony Kornheiser. This is the Tony Kornheiser Show. Once again, we have Jay Johnson. This is a song called Love Song. This is from his album, Four Quartets. The ethereal drone sound is actually 
a series of wine glasses that I tuned to four different notes, played and recorded five-minute loops of at different tape speeds on my tape machine. Texturally, I wanted the song to feel like a musical embrace, and lyrically, I sought to describe the feeling of pure love in ways that could be romantic, platonic, familial, spiritual, or whatever way the listener wishes. Four quartets will be out on all streaming platforms on Friday, July 15th. That's in a few weeks. Oh, July 15th. Oh, July 15th, yes. Sorry. We're still in June. Yes, we are trying we to tape check sometimes, but we don't tape that far ahead. <laughs> yes. We're still in June. Do you want to tell people how, if they're like Jay Johnson, they can send us their original music? Yes, you can send it to us at jingles at tonycornosershow.com. And remember, you can, you know, at the end of the podcast, you can listen to the music, which is what you ought to do. Anyway, Jay plays in Ann Hornaday, and we're going to talk about two things and two things only. And I'm going to talk a lot and let Ann listen and then respond. The first is a movie about Elvis Presley called Elvis. Tom Hanks is in it. I'm told he's not Elvis. I'm told he's Colonel Tom Parker and all. But here's, here's my question. I understand we've had a movie about Elton John. I understand we've had a movie about Freddie Mercury. I understand that long after she had passed on, we did a movie about Judy Garland. Elvis is bigger than all of those people. Um, we haven't had a movie about the Beatles, a real movie about the Beatles. Haven't had a real movie about the Rolling Stones. Because I would think people would be afraid to do that kind of movie. Afraid. Because too many people have too much invested in those people. And they remember them very well. And they, they'll be upset if it doesn't feel like the real deal. Which is a long way of me asking, why would you do Elvis and does it work? Um, you're right, and, and P.S., also, put on top of that, why would you do a movie about literally the most imitated person on the planet, <laughs> right? Yeah. Like, the person of all those icons you mentioned, who, <laughs> there is a whole industry of imitators, you know, so that yes. you even have a, a, a higher hill to climb, in my opinion, about, like, getting away from that. Um... So, I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's hubris, and the director is Baz Luhrmann, and he's very known for kind of going, going big or going home and doing things in a very splashy, spectacular way. And I just feel like he thought, I can do this. And um, I don't think it works, and it's not because they found the wrong per. I was concerned about the actor because I just, when I saw him in publicity photos and stuff, I just thought, no, I don't see it. But this young guy, his name's Austin Butler. I did not know him. I did not know who he was. Um, there's a moment in this movie. It, it's pretty chronological. You know, it's, it's a soup to nuts, birth to death kind of a thing. But when, when he hits Vegas, when he hits the residency in Vegas, when he's, you know, doing the karate chops and yeah, yeah. that era... There's something happened <laughs> at that moment for me where I'm like, holy Toledo, he's Elvis. I mean, he really does a very good job of embodying Elvis Presley. But the problem is he can't play him because this movie is so busy and frenetic and over the top that he cannot, you can't find his performance. Um, like you said, it's, Hanks plays Colonel Tom Parker, who's really the narrator. He's kind of our Virgil, you know, through this. Yeah, yeah these all these circles of hell that Elvis goes through, and he just keeps intruding. You know, he's narrating this thing all the time with his, you know, irritating Dutch accents. He was, very, he was Dutch in real life. Um, and, he's, and they're cutting away to his little commentaries, and I don't know, I just found that. I found it an interesting way to approach the story, but it doesn't, it's so oppressive and so uninteresting to me and like i said it's just like the, the one person who gets lost in all this is elvis presley colonel tom parker was dutch really yeah, he was from the netherlands he was a, really yeah. i just assumed he was like colonel sanders right That's what he wanted Kentucky. you to think That's I know. What I, he wanted everyone to think he was a good old boy from west virginia and he right. was, you know working car and he wasn't really a colonel <laughs> he was an honorary he was made an honorary colonel by a governor of louisiana for his help uh, on a political campaign he's so dutch thing, yeah i have no so idea yeah, so he's well, this kind of sharp, you know, he's a carny, and he's a sharpie, right, and he's right. looking, you know, to exploit somebody, and he finds Elvis, and that's his ultimate geek. For, uh, so that's, the, that's kind of the theme. 
um, is that they needed each other, and, um, you know, it doesn't demonize the colonel as much as some people have demonized him in terms of exploiting and taking advantage of Elvis Presley, but um, I don't know. It's, it's, It's a very strange movie. I mean, I do think some people have really enjoyed it, and I can see why, because if you let yourself go... You know, if you're if you just let it happen and kind of go for the ride, then I do think it, it there. You know, there's there are some really um, arresting scenes. I do think Butler's performance is really admirable. What he can give of it, um, you know, they do some like like when he does Suspicious Minds. You know, it's it's lovely. And then no spoilers here, but they do end on the real Elvis, which is poignant and sad and beautiful and also it, it only underscores like what you just said is there, there was only one and no one can is, no yeah. one can touch him you know so i'm i'm old and yeah. I've, and and i understand that people probably in their 40s never got to see elvis presley do anything and they rely on old clips and maybe they don't think much of elvis presley but elvis presley was a giant beyond their imagination um i was a rock critic for an hour and a half at newsday and Elvis played in the early 70s or mid-70s mid at the Nassau Coliseum. And this was that period of time where he would wear these ridiculous jumpsuits right. uh, that were all sequined. And he would yeah. rub scarfs or his handler would rub a scarf over his head and throw it out into the audience with 100% Elvis sweat on it. <laughs> and he was terrible. Okay, the show was terrible. And I wrote it was terrible. And I said, what, what was angering more than anything else is this guy. You don't want to, understand, you don't want to believe this. The guy's got one of the great voices of all time. That's right. That's if you right. hear him do the Battle Hymn of the Republic, right. you, you start crying. His voice is and was, not is, his voice was that good. And yeah. this was garbage. Mm. And I wrote that. I didn't say garbage, but I said, you know, it's, it's, it's a half baked show yeah i got letters you cannot believe every single letter i got was negative about me yeah every single one how dare you say this about elvis there's nobody ever who had fans like elvis presley not even donald trump no (laughs) elvis presley had the most invested fans of anybody of all time. And they didn't, even when they saw that it was garbage, they thought it was great because it was Elvis Presley. And I don't know how you can get that on screen with another guy. You know what I'm saying? I just don't think you can. I I totally get what you're saying, but you know, and that's the era where I feel like the movie does the best in terms of conveying all that, that mania and that kind of, although, and his voice. I mean, it does oh. come back to that voice, which was absolutely phenomenal. You can't believe it. Phenomenal. And, um, yeah, and apparently Butler, I didn't know this, Butler actually does his own singing toward the, in the beginning of the movie, and then they, they dub and lip sync and sort of mesh the two toward the end, which was smart, you know, because, you know, that's, that's okay. You can do that. And uh, it kind of reminded me, you know, like I was a little skeptical. I remember when I was watching Bohemian Rhapsody, I'm thinking like, oh, God, this is such, it was just so full of cliches and this yep. and that. And then when they did, and then when they do the Live Aid concert, Ooh. I fell to pieces. I just fell apart. It was so good, yeah. you know? Yeah. So. And I kind of felt that way with this movie. It's like I was just so resistant and resistant. And then it's like, oh, you got me, you know? But um, this is much messier and much more interpretive okay. and... Uh, like I said, you know, I'm with you on that. Like, why? You know, especially when you get to that end, you see the real man, you're thinking like, well, okay. You know, that just, you just you just sort of deleted the last two and a half hours of your movie here, you know. But we'll okay. see. It'll be interesting. You know, I mean, the reason they do it is that they think they're going to make money and that these icons still do have those manic and devoted fans. So it'll be interesting to see what happens with this one, you know? Yeah. His devoted fans are 80 years old at the Exactly, moment. and those <laughs> yeah. are the people that are precisely not coming back to theaters yeah. in droves. Yeah. Yeah. And so um, people, keep, people keep playing with this. You know, I mean, by people I do mean the studios and, and Hollywood. You know, like, well, what's, what's it going to take? And so that's going to be a whole interesting thing to watch, too. I said I was going to talk about two things. Okay, now I'm going to get one. to the second thing. Okay. You wrote a piece about 10 days ago about um, Woodward and Bernstein. 
It's a great, great, great piece. I called you. you I left you a message. Thank it's a great you. piece. Um, we are, we in the newspaper business, and there are very few of us, and I'm not even one of them anymore, but we in the newspaper business are lucky. We are fortunate. Part of our work involves meeting famous, accomplished people. We're supposed to not become starstruck as a result of that, and we're supposed to be objective, but every once in a while, something happens and you sort of can't help yourself. It's happened to me a number of times. I hope the stories I wrote were good, but I was under the influence of somebody who I, you know, revered. I've told this story a lot of times. First time I met Ben Bradley, he walked in. I was being offered a job at the Washington Post by Shelby Coffey and George mm-hmm. Solomon, and Ben and Sally walked in, and, and it is right out of Jerry Maguire. You had me at hello. I would have worked for nothing. I would have worked for nothing. So thankfully, I worked for him, and I didn't have to write about him. But you talked to Bob and Carl, and you obviously talked to Robert Redford, and you wrote a great piece, Aww. but I'm sort of wondering, you know, were you a little starstruck by the whole deal? I mean, how was that? Well, that's a good question. I, I honestly wouldn't say, I really feel at this point, Tony, that um, I was, I, I'll be honest, I wasn't starstruck, you know, okay. because, and, and it's, it's, it might be because they're so, well, first You've of talked all, to them all before, I know. True. I had yeah. talked to Redford. Yeah, I mean, I, I've talked to Redford a few times, so yeah. I kind of got over. I kind of got over that. Um, such a good piece. It's such oh, a good you. piece. Oh, thank you. I had so. You know that it. You know the reporting pro. It, it, the reporting process is falling in love, and then you get divorced when you write. Yeah. Um, yep. This is one where I. And also, I, no one likes writing. They like to have written. <laughs> yes. Right. You know. Yes. But this is one that I genuinely loved writing. I loved reporting it. I loved writing it. I loved talking about it. It's like, there was no part of the process I didn't love about this, because it was just, I got to watch that movie, All the President's Men, over and over again, which I think I could watch every day for the rest of my life. It's so good. Um, I got to talk about a thing that people were so proud of. Um, and so, and But, like, the piece is all about how it might not have been that thing. Um, but, yeah, with, and Bob, I had met Bob before, and he, you know, he's so accessible, and he was yes. so generous. It, and it started, the whole thing started with him because he had this screenplay that he's kept for all these years with his notes on it. Um, and that became the kind of, that became the launch pad for the piece because he brought it into the, the office, and they showed, they were like, huh, that's an interesting artifact. Let's show it to our film critic. And, I, and they said, what do you think? And I said, well, this is a fascinating text uh, and kind of um, artifact of an example of how a, uh, an okay movie became a masterpiece. Um, and that's how, that in a way, we went. So I, and then Carl, I had never met and never talked to, and he was just so generous with his time and... Um, memories and I don't know. I guess I so I know I wouldn't. I think we were all we were all so interested. You know, they were interested to talk about the film and its evolution, and I was interested in finding out what they knew and what their thing was. So I think we didn't have time to. Be, I guess I just I was so focused, you know, on my questions. I, I didn't. This is one where I really didn't get to. I didn't get to um, fluttery about it. William Goldman, who is an Academy Award-winning screenwriter, who's one of the greats who I believe wrote Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, among other movies, and maybe Marathon Man. William Goldman does not come across all that great in this piece, right? Does not. Well, yes and no. I mean, I think Goldman, um, the, 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 the draft that, that Bob brought in and that I was working from was very, it was a very early, it was the second draft, it was very jokey. He had just written Butch Cassidy, and it had a lot of Butch Cassidy in it. You know, it was very jokey. Right. And and I think, in his defense, he's thinking, well, it's a Robert Redford movie. And I, I'm not sure by that time they had cast Dustin Hoffman, but they knew that if they were going to have Robert Redford playing, playing Woodward, they had to have a star, a, a commensurate star playing um, Bernstein. So I, you know, so I think he went to the conventional thing, which is, oh, I'm going to write a Hollywood buddy, con-, you know, like, 
with lots of girl scenes. They each had a girlfriend or or an ex wife or you know there were, there were many more conventional scenes that you that you would at the time you have your biggest movie star on the planet who's a sex symbol. How can you have a movie with Robert Redford in it and not have girls, you know, and have him kiss a girl? That was unheard of. So he was only doing what I think, you know, he was, he was obeying his reflexes. He's a Hollywood screenwriter. He's a Hollywood he, screenwriter. That's and he's, what he he's did. Doing a, right. He's, he's giving them the deliverables. Yeah, and it's... And so it yeah. wasn't really, you know, and, and, and he's not the... And most movies start out with bad first drafts, and then you keep refining it. So I don't want to overstate how bad he was. I'm just... I was trying to... And then, and let's be honest, he... He figured out the structure of the piece. The structure of yes. the movie never changed, and that was Bill Goldman. And there were absolutely crucial scenes in the film, in my mind, the bookkeeper scene being the biggest one, that never changed. It was always in the movie, and it was always in the movie as written. And they did it as written, and that's Bill Goldman. He's that's a Bill great Goldman's writer. Judgment. He's yeah. a great writer. Well, I, I wanna... applaud him, and I also yeah. applaud Bob and Carl for saying... Yeah. We got to be more faithful to what actually happened. Oh yeah, here. because they were mortified at that first, you know, yes. those first drafts. They were just like, no, 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 no. We cannot have this corny stuff in there. Yeah. And so then you have to also give credit to Redford and Pakula, the direct Alan Pakula, the director, because they're the ones I think. Um, and and I and to this day, I mean, I did as much research as I, you know, let's, as Carl says, journalism is the best obtainable version of the truth. <laughs> And the the best obtainable version of this story I could get was what I wrote about, but I feel like there's more I could I could do, you know, because I still am not. Even when I went through Goldman's papers, I couldn't. I could make surmises, but I really couldn't prove who's you know whose idea it was to do this and that. I mean, I think Redford, Pakula, and Goldman were in constant communication. They were telling him what they needed. He was providing it. So who did what when is still a little bit of a mystery. Well, the, um, reason, the reason that we talk about this is it is the 50th anniversary of Watergate and All the President's Men is the movie that came out of that. And it's a great movie. Mm-hmm. It's a great movie. Yep. Um, and, and I don't, I'm sure I am influenced, not, not so much because I know Bob and Carl, but because I lived through it and worked at a newspaper. You know, right. so uh, exactly. and I've seen newspaper movies that are fun, but they don't necessarily work. You know, you they're know, not they're not that great. But you, this you one know what is. Len Downey told me, Len, who was the executive editor when I worked at the first worked at the Post, and mm-hmm. that was the days when Ben Bradley was still coming in and having lunch with his buddies, mm-hmm. and it was mm-hmm. a thrill every time he walked down the hall. I mean, it was just, you know, we were still in that 15th Street newsroom. So to see Ben Bradley in that room, yeah. you know, it was just like, oh my God. But um, Len said when he first saw all the president's men, he said, you know, my office, he was deputy metro editor during Watergate, and he said the, all those shots with Bob Redford on the phone, he said, my office in real life was right behind there. And he said, there is somebody in that office almost all the time doing what I would have been doing. He said, I can tell what day it is and what time of day it is by what that guy is doing in the background. That's how, that's how punctilious they were yeah. about the action and about the background players and about the set design. I mean, it was absolutely uncanny, just yeah. uncanny how they reproduced it. Great. It's great. Great piece. Thank you, Ann. Thanks. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you, TK. And Hornaday, boys and girls, we will take a break. We will do email and jingle when we return. We have a Steve Lipton song sung by Joe Arrow. Yes. He's playing the DS, the designated singer, <laughs> on Tony Kornheiser. This is the Tony Kornheiser Show. Yeah, 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 
Steve Lipton writes it, Joe Arrow sings it, and Steve Lipton writes this. What's that? The orchid on the IL again? I had to bench myself and bring in the Joe Arrow as the DS designated singer. Perhaps that will come to the National League before Steven Strasburg throws another pitch in an MLB game, the DS designated singer. Yeah, Strasburg. Enjoy the money. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Now, do you want to do the Bethesda Bagel ad? Uh, yes, Bethesda Bagels. We love them. You will as well. Just go to BethesdaBagels.com for the location in the D.C. area nearest you. Then pop on in, and you'll be thrilled. That's it for us today. Before we get to the mailbag, let me just say, Dream Baby got me dreaming sweet dreams the whole day through. Dream Baby got me dreaming sweet dreams nighttime, too. I love you, and I'm dreaming of you. That won't do. Dream Baby, make me stop my dreaming. You can make my dreams come true. The great Roy Orbison yes. did that. Thanks to our guests, Brian Windhorst and Ann Hornaday. Thanks to today's sponsors, ZipRecruiter and Progressive. Remember, you can listen to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, Odyssey. If you get the show through Apple Podcasts, please leave us a review. From Patrick Smith in Annandale, Virginia, thank you for sharing with the littles the details about Jingle Fest this Saturday, Saturday, June 25th at 7 p.m. at the Holiday Inn Express in Springfield, Virginia. Would you please also share with all of the littles the detail about Mingle Fest? The party before the music. <laughs> Friday, June 24th, 4 p.m. to 10 p.m. at Settle Down Easy Brewing. For uh, Falifax Drive, Falifax or Fallfax? Fallfax Drive, Falls Church, Virginia. All littles and bigs are welcome. I know some are in town. Bonnie Burko emailed me today, this morning. Um, the KJ's here. Oh, so, you know, wonderful. Enjoy it. Welcome Mingle back Fest. To town. Yeah, the Mingle Fest, the party before the music. From Neville Waters. It's Neville. Yes, that Neville. <laughs> I recently purchased a new vehicle and wanted to make sure you were aware in case we see each other again while you're walking Chessie as I'm no longer pushing that hoopty. I appreciate Wilbon defending me, but I recall you appropriately called me out for the state of my ride. He was driving a dump. His awful car. Thus attaches a photo collage, note the PTI cap, and my GT 0300 license plate as a longtime lifetime resident of Georgetown. I was overjoyed to have randomly received them. GT makes them happy. Yeah. And thought you'd appreciate my delight. It's a lovely car. It's a nice blue car. Yeah. Nissan. Good for Neville. Yeah. what he was riding was not <laughs> worthy of Neville. From Mike Kubitschek in Annapolis. Tony, when you read the email from the guy from the San Francisco area band, The Squires, I was waiting for a not to be confused with disclaimer. And indeed, we got one, except not the one I was expecting. Before Neil Young moved down to L.A. and subsequently formed Buffalo Springfield with Stephen Still, etc., his first band of real consequence was the Squires. He was with them from 1963 to 1965 in Winnipeg, Manitoba. And now for some trivia. After Young left the Squires, he eventually ended up in a band in Toronto called the Minor Birds that was fronted by an American who had moved to Canada while AWOL from the Navy. His name, Rick James. The Minor Birds broke up when wow. James was arrested for said unapproved leave. And it was then that Neil Young famously drove down to L.A. with Bruce Palmer, founding Buffalo Springfield bassist in Young's hearse, and eventually was spotted by Stephen Stills on Sunset Boulevard. <laughs> yes, that's, yes, yes. That's fantastic. Um, are you still with us, Sean? We've lost you twice already today. You got us now? I am here. Keep going. Yeah, I mean, I'm just saying that, like, Comcast is screwing us royally at exactly the same time at a quarter to eight and exactly the same time at a quarter to nine we went out. Because they're messing around with something. Probably in league. Comcast. With, probably in league with the easy pass. Jordan Chance, Lindenhurst, New York. Lindenhurst is on Long Island. This show really hits too close to home sometimes. We're talking Joey Budafuco now. My dad used to work for him. <laughs> when might you ask? Or oh, right around the time he dated a 16-year-old Amy Fisher, who subsequently shot his wife in the face. Needless to say, a search for new employment began immediately. <laughs> I was only a year old at the time and left with no memory of the events to speak of, just a lifelong, genuine disgust of all things and people associated with Massapequa. <laughs> now, the uh, the Baldwin brothers are from Massapequa. Oh. They're all from Massapequa. I wasn't aware of that. From Jared Schofer, Washington, D.C., and I thought I was the only one obsessed with D.C. license plates. Did you know that the D.C. DMV was wise enough to skip the F.U. Plates. Uh, we all knew that they would do that. Yes. Smart move by then. Also, I've seen GT, but no higher than GT21. And I've seen many GVs, but none of them form GV5, GV6, GV7, or GV9. There hasn't been any sightings of GW to GZ as well. I think I've seen a GW, but I'm not sure. All JAs I've seen have been in the form of JA07, JA23, JA37, or JA38. Fascinating. Jared, you're weirder than I am. I mean, I do this, but not to that detail. From James Benvega, 
I heard you talking about wanting to visit Mount Rushmore on PTI not long ago. Yeah, I'd, I'd like to see the heads. If you would like, I can show you around the Black Hills, including Rushmore. There are also many fine golf courses in the area. I belong to the golf club at Devil's Tower, a hidden gem located in a town with a population of 400. And you could certainly golf there as my guest, along with my 16 handicap. I'm a native New Yorker who moved out west after high school in 1973, and I've never looked back. Anytime after the COVID mess is cleared up is fine. Well, I bring that up because this is from November 19th, 2020. Because the COVID mess goes on and on yep. and on and on. Yeah, we'll the never ending. Too. Yeah. Dear Mr. Tony, my name is Joe Tukotsky from New Haven, Connecticut, and along with Evan McFarland of New Brunswick, Canada, not New Jersey, we host a monthly sports show on CHCO, a community TV channel north of the border in scenic St. Andrews by the sea. Because the U.S.-Canada border remains closed, and I say that because this was from 2020 as well, we currently tape the show using Zoom. As for some reason, the U.S. and Canadian governments don't see my travel to Canada to tape the show as an essential service. I've been a fan of yours since the start of PTI, and I even got a picture taken with you at a pen game at the Palestra. More friendly than I expected, although much less orange than I had expected. <laughs> Since we can't end our shows with Goodnight Canada for legal reasons, thanks, Tony, we were wondering if we could be named the official Canadian community television sports show of the Tony Kornheiser Show. Although we normally talk about Bone Bonespiels, Tim Hortons, and small towns in Newfoundland, we'd have no trouble adding segments on Subaru's NFL picks and the Loomis Chafee School for the Rich, which is actually just 45 minutes from where I live. And to top it off, Evan is a golf pro at the gorgeous Algonquin Golf Course in St. Andrews in Canada and would be willing to host you and Michael for a round once the border reopens. Joe, now why do I read that? Because Joe Tukotsky never said we'd like you to come on. Never said, would you do 15 minutes with us? Right. Never said that. Understood I wouldn't do it and just said... <laughs> Well, you can come up and play golf if you want. Could we just be affiliated with your show? I waited a long time to say that because I just missed it, but I liked it. From Peyton Rawls in Pearl, Mississippi. As a loyal little and lifelong mayonnaise connoisseur. I didn't know there was such a thing, a mayonnaise connoisseur. I have to tell you, you've never had a truly great condiment until you've had blue plate, blue plate mayonnaise. It is far and away better than Hellman's, Duke's, or any other brand. Try it. You'll like it. Blue plate mayonnaise. I've never heard of it. Have Not heard, heard of that either. It's a niche industry, the mayonnaise. mayonnaise Here's console. one from January 2021. From Tom DeFelice. Just heard your podcast about the Nehru suit. Don't know when I did that. <laughs> and I laughed out loud. As a teenager in the summer of 1968, I was taking some classes in New York City. One day, a fellow student who seemed to be perfectly normal came to class in a lemon yellow Nehru suit. <laughs> to put it mildly, we never looked at him the same again. <laughs> I'd forgotten all about that until you said Nehru suit. From Jim Cardillo in Annapolis, Maryland. Mr. Tony, there's now a second Vanderwens ice cream shop on the way to Rehoboth. This one is on 16, so you can still jump off 404 and take 16 through Greenwood and still get their ice cream. That's the one I've always gone to. Uh, okay. That's the one that's aquamarine. It's painted aquamarine. So you've already Yes, no, that. I know that one. Okay. I know that one. Yes, I had some free passes to that. I still have them, but I've lost them. <laughs> From John Messler in Alice Springs, Australia. In Australia. <laughs> I heard you talk about how happy you were that the Warriors proved they could win a championship without Kevin Durant. I think you're missing the point. They proved they can win without JaVale McGee. That's funny. <laughs> That's a good point, That's too. That's actually funny. Okay. From Will Green in McKinney, Texas. I found myself in an emergency room earlier this week. Don't worry. Everyone's doing fine now, ever. Fine now. However, I failed to ask the doctors if any of them could play the fiddle and other instruments as well as Ian Warrington. I will do better next time. P.S. Reed is a good name. I know three people named Reed, spelled R-E-E-D or R-E-I-D, and I don't hate any of them. It's good to know. And one more. Dear Dr. Corey Tonheiser, I meant to send this email back in October of 2021, but I ran out of Wi-Fi and I had to go buy more. <laughs> from Benjamin Bruner in Easton, Maryland. If you're out on your bike tonight, everyone, as always, do wear white. If I wish one of your guys had children, if I could kick them in the head or stomp on their testicles for you could feel my pain, because that's the pain I have, waking up every day. Sorry, Mike.